I want to preach this morning on the reality of hell. You know, we think about different things we can talk about. We're in the book of Luke this morning. We're over in uh, chapter number 16. Very familiar verses. I, I'm not sure why God gave me these verses, but, uh, you know, he, he gave me some great stories about our military men and women and what they've done for our country. And I even uh, asked Pastor when I got here, I said, Pastor, is it all right if I preach on hell? I don't want to preach on something that Pastor wants to cover by himself or self, uh, things of that nature. But, uh, you know, the Lord mentions hell in the Bible 33 times. 52 times our Lord and Savior Christ mentioned hell uh, 33 times. That's a lot. That's uh, more than he mentioned heaven. And uh, uh, in, in the New Testament of the Bible, 52 times hell is mentioned. So, so hell's a big deal, and the avoidance thereof, it's, it's a big deal biblically. God wants us to know what hell looks like, what hell is, and, and things of that nature. And so I really wanted to uh, talk about that a little bit today, because God put that on my mind. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about. So we're in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse number 19, a very, very familiar story. Uh, about the rich man and Lazarus. So we're in the book of Luke, chapter 16, starting in verse number 19. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And we, we see there in that verse number 19, where it talks about clothed in purple. Purple's the hardest color to make a couple thousand years ago. It was an extremely hard color to make. It, uh, it was, you know, you were, you were more apt to see red. Uh, you were more apt to see greens, but but purple was tough. Blue was tough. So purple was a color of royalty because the average person couldn't afford it. So as you look at that verse, remember that this person wearing purple is one rich person, uh, very wealthy, very blessed financially, <clears throat> and he fared sumptuously. So in this time, there was a lot of people who, who didn't eat necessarily the best food, and we fared sumptuously last night, and we, as, a, as a culture, we fare sumptuously. But they're talking about this certain rich man clothed in purple, Verse number 20, and there was a certain beggar, so going to a different extreme, he says there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. So what would happen is, you know how sometimes we go out and we run into beggars, maybe in Tampa or maybe even here in Sarasota for all I know, and, and some people will carry them and drop them somewhere and they'll beg from you. Uh, it was just a week or two ago we saw a man who was down in Greenville, and uh, he was sitting on the ground saying he needed money for breakfast, and I had just come out of breakfast week no uh, restaurant week on a Saturday <laughs> you know you, you pay uh, Debbie and I went with the boys and we all pay 30 bucks and you can eat three different helpers in this really high-end restaurant and so we we haven't done a high-end restaurant with the kids in a year well a few years and uh, so we went so you feel bad you come out this guy sitting on the ground who's hungry and you just ate you know the $30 restaurant week uh, you had dessert you had a meal and and you had a, a salad or an appetizer so I give the man $5. Well, fast forward a week, and I felt really bad for him, and I'd like to have given him more. And uh, I felt bad all week. You know, God was putting it on my heart. I thought that I should have given him more money. But we went to the mall the other morning. As we were at the mall, a man was parking a Honda in the corner. And he parked way away from the building. And I saw him walk up, and he started begging, and it was that guy. And he had like a brand-new or two- or three-year-old Honda going back here. And he was coming to do the begging. But some people are begging are real. This guy's real. He's late at the gate. His situation's so bad that obviously he needed help to get to this rich man's gate. Now, that wasn't uncommon back then, folks. It wasn't uncommon to take the beggars to the place where the most, excuse me, where the most money would be at. Like today at our malls, airports. And take them where most of the money will be, where people may have some cash readily available on it to give to him. And so they laid him at the gate. Not only was he a beggar, he was full of sores. And 
and, and we get an idea from those sores. And I was studying this out again last night as I fell asleep. Is, is you know, you get bed sores. You get sores from laying on the ground. You get sores from not showering, from not taking care of yourself. All these different things from being poor are caught up with this, catching up with this guy. And we know that, don't we? We go to the nursing homes. I, I remember when my mom uh, was in a, a nursing home that they wouldn't necessarily take care of her well enough sometimes. And my sister or somebody would go by to see her and they'd find a sore on her. Of course, everybody would get upset and would all email the management there and they'd fix it. But, but here's a guy whose body's full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So back then, you know, they would use their bread, the crumbs, they call them crumbs, to wipe their face and stuff as they ate. Wipe it, and they'd throw them on the floor and the dogs would eat them. And all this beggar wanted was some of that. Just to taste some of that. There are people in this world, even today, that have it that bad. Uh, there are people who are going through that, even today. And, uh, and, it, and it says in verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried uh, by the angels into Abraham's bosom to heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And, and, and so it says, you know, this beggar died. It doesn't matter about finances with heaven. Uh, God doesn't care how much money we have. You know, uh, just the other day, Debbie and I were listening to the Bible. Uh, the last couple of days, we, uh, Brother O'Malley got us. I know a lot of you know John O'Malley, just a great guy, great friend of ours. And, and, uh, but he talked us into buying this dramatic Bible where it's, uh, it's the King James Version of the Bible. And it's, it's an audio book. It's on Audible. They have a free month, and you get to pick one book. Then you can drop it, and you still have this awesome Bible. Well, we were driving our road. We were listening to a Joseph's story and, and uh, you know, where that Bible says, and, and, and Joseph. Uh, was a rich man and uh, Joseph and here's a guy who's a slave was sold into slavery uh, slavery but he was a rich man not because of the money he had but because of his relationship with God so so I, I think it's important for us uh, to really understand that it's 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 not what you know it's not what we have it's it's the God we have a relationship with Amen. it's the God who saves us that, that provides our wealth, that brings us to where we're going. And, uh, and that's so important. So it had nothing to do with this guy being poor. had everything to do with his relationship with God. He was, uh, he was carried into uh, Abraham's bosom there. And, uh, and so it goes on and it tells in verse 23, And in hell, in hell he lifted up uh, his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. So... So think about that. He, he lifted up his eyes and he saw that. And then he says, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip his finger. Now this was the guy who uh, unfortunately was at the gates with the sores, whose life was just trying to get crumbs. And uh, here's this rich man. And this rich man saying, uh, Father Abraham, you know, God, would you just send the beggar with one drip of water for me in hell? Hell is real, folks. It's a real place. It's so hot. It's so terrible. We're going to talk about that day. He just wanted one drip of water on his finger and cool my tongue, for I am tormented. I am tormented by this flame. And uh, I want to stop right there, diverse and pray. But that's, that's the area of the Bible we're going to be talking about today. Luke 16, 19 through 24. Heavenly Father, we love you. Dear God, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for Temple Baptist Church, these, these folks who've come out, these wonderful souls oh god we come to you this morning as we preach on hell this is a hard sermon lord this is this is the hard truth of the reality of not choosing you as a lord and savior and god i i pray i i beg you lord if there's one in here or two or 
a couple that are maybe not saved, maybe not sure about their salvation, that today would be their day of salvation. The Lord would be quick to realize and honor you. You alone can save. You alone can change lives. You alone can uh, help us. You, you alone. So, Lord, we come to you and we ask you to have your way in our hearts and our minds. Have your way in this sermon. Take any words from me, Lord, that would not bring you honor and glory. And replace them with your wonderful words. We love you and we need you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So as we read through there. So, so there's a lot going on there in, in talking about that particular section of the Bible and, and those things going on. I was reminded about some things I want to share with you. Uh, and you guys remember flamethrowers? You probably saw in the World War II movies and stuff. They got rid of them, I guess, after World War II. But flamethrowers, it was this idea. So you would wear a couple tanks, these big tanks. They almost uh, looked like a scuba tank, but bigger. And you'd wear two of them. And, and I want to get this mix right, but, but two-thirds of the mix was diesel fuel. So of this tank, about two-thirds, uh, one tank and a third of another tank was diesel fuel. And then they would take uh, uh, what was left would be 100-octane gasoline and air, pressurized air. And so they would take that oxygen, that diesel fuel, that, that high-burning 100-octane gas, we know that's what race cars use and planes and things of that nature. So real, real aviation type of fuel stuff. And it would mix together and come out this spout. And, and among this, and they were all separated. They weren't mixed together. So you had diesel taken up one and a third. Then you had another chamber uh, that had, you know, had air in it. Then you had another chamber with gas in it. And they, it also had napalm jelly mixed inside of the diesel fuel. And uh, what would happen is this air, which was part of the tank, it would push this out. You could pull the trigger on a flamethrower six times. And then you got that thing off your back because you were a target by every enemy that was out there. A Marine, brother, talk about bravery. A Marine in the Pacific during World War II carrying a flamethrower when you volunteered for that job, and it was a voluntary job, but probably I think that some, I think it's a little bit like the Army. It's like, hey, you, you just volunteered. Come get this on. There's probably a little of that going on. But their expected length of their life on a battlefield was four minutes. The average person carrying a flamethrower in a battle lived four minutes. Uh, matter of fact, they had a reunion 10 years after World War II uh, for people who use flamethrowers. So about one out of 10 people use flamethrowers in the Pacific. One out of 10 people in the Pacific were Army. Most of them were Marines because they had most of the Army in Europe So as they recruited. So out of all those people, so you had this big, huge force of Army and Marines going through the Pacific. And uh, they had a reunion of that, and our country uh, could only find about 2% of people who were ever signed up as flamethrowers that were still alive at the end of that war. So, I mean, that's how, that's how crazy it was. You say, well, Brother Doug, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I met a guy, and what stimulated this, this message and what stimulated uh, this talk on flamethrowers is I, I met a guy in the VA hospital in Seattle, Washington. And, and the man I met in the VA hospital in Seattle, Washington, didn't want to go to hell. And so we were able to visit the hospital, and if somebody writes down that they're Baptist or Protestant or Christian, and they're willing to see preachers, so they check the box then the chaplain can allow you to go in and see those people. And, uh, as, and so we were seen as guests that day. And they said, go visit this man. He doesn't have long to live. And uh, so I went to see this guy with a pastor. And we went walking down there on a Monday morning. And, and uh, we went through the area. And, and it was a real cold day outside. And I got to this man and I asked him what he did. He told me 
he had been a Marine. He had been an infantryman. And, of course, I thanked him for his service. He, uh, you know, these guys were heroes that serve in these wars and stuff. There's just a wonderful man. He, he was obviously toward the end of his life with illness and stuff. And he told me he was an infantryman that got to work a flamethrower. He said that his company had, uh, when they went into, he was in Iwo Jima. And when they went into Iwo Jima, they had nine people per flamethrower position. So for every flamethrower, they had one per platoon. They had nine backups. And, uh, and he was number nine on this particular day, and they were going up into the caves. And uh, what would happen is when the flamethrower got shot, and they had a ton of these, people were carrying flamethrowers because they'd go empty. And there'd be guys in the back mixing them. They'd try to get them back to get them off Navy ships. And so he was out there in a battle one day, and he said, I heard two. So I didn't hear one being called. One was already with the fire. So number one got shot. And he said, in no time at all, I heard three, four, five, and six. And he said, you know, he said, I didn't know who to pray to, but he said, I was praying to God like I saw people do around me. I was making the cross on my chest, you know, the crucifix or, or whatever. He said, I was praying out. And, and he said, and then I heard eight. And that meant I had to be in position around this man. And he said there was, on, on top of the hill, he said there was a cave. And right inside the door of the cave, now these caves, they're not a lot like caves we see around here that you can go through for miles. They're, they're more caves that ended because of the way it was built from the, you know, a lot of these old little islands out in the Pacific were obviously made by volcanoes and stuff, and it's real sketchy. So a guy had, was inside of a cave with a small opening with a machine gun just wiping out Marines. And so they sent number eight up the hill. And so number nine's behind them. And again, you got a whole platoon shooting and trying to protect this flamethrower because you automatically know the objective at this point is get the guy out of the cave. The best way to get the guy out of the cave today, we would, we would shoot a, uh, an RPG in there, a uh, rocket-propelled grenade, but they didn't have those in World War II. So the, the, the object was the highest-powered rifle possible, whatever it would take. You've got to get it up in that cave. You've got to end what's going on. You've got to stop what's going on. And uh, so, so number eight died. And so he, when he picked it up, there were two pulls left on the trigger, and they had no more, uh, there, there were no more flamethrowers in the area. And uh, he said his captain looked at him and said, son, and he was from San Bernardino, I never forget that, San Bernardino, California. He said, son, I need you to go up and get that flamethrower inside that cave. And he said, don't pull that trigger until you get it inside the cave. He says, I need you to do it for San Bernardino, California. And he said he put the thing on, and everybody was cheering him on, and he was you know, the machine guns were firing and stuff, and he, he worked his way over to the cave. And he got over to the cave, and he said right when he did that, all the Marines stood up and just started firing the M1s into the cave. Everybody did. You know, that's, that's to slow the guy down, throw him off his rhythm. And as soon as the firing stopped, when it went down to one weapon, that meant they were shooting over the cave. It was real interesting. The guy who was shooting the one weapon was shooting over the cave. It wasn't going to hit the flamethrower. They were just shooting it to fake out the guy inside the cave and he said when it went down to one weapon he jumped in front of the machine gun and he pulled the trigger and then he said he pulled the trigger a second time threw the thing off and started running down the hill and and when he did this guy came out of the cave in flames on his whole body screaming things in Japanese just screaming in the Japanese language now years later a, a fellow a BIMI missionary led a Japanese man to the Lord in Japan and uh, this Japanese man said he was at the Battle of Iwo Jima, said he could, he wrote in his book about being saved and stuff, that he could hear a man screaming two miles away who was burning up from a flamethrower. 
Well, this man I met was the guy who pulled that trigger. And uh, so this guy, I'm talking to him. So I started talking to him, uh, you know, about his walk with God and whether or not he was saved. And, and he stopped me and he said, I don't think I am. And he said, I don't ever want to see fire like that again. He said, he said, I laid on the ground. And he said, because I had no, no weapon on me, I didn't know if other people were coming over the hill. So my marching orders were to lay on the ground until the soldiers got, you know, the Marines got by him and he got a new M1. And he said, I laid on the ground and was just crying. Never let me pull a trigger again on a flamethrower. But he went on, I'll never forget what he said. He went on to say, you could smell flesh burning. You could hear the guy screaming so loud, people were crying and running on the battlefield. Finally, a Marine Corps sniper is what he said. Uh, one of their snipers was back about 200 yards. Uh, the Marines weren't quite wanting to give up their position uh, by shooting at a Japanese guy. They didn't want the enemy to know where they were at, where they were. And a Marine Corps sniper from way back uh, shot him with one shot and killed him. But I thought about that, and it made me, it made me think of hell. So I got three very quick points this morning and, uh, uh, that I want to share with you. So remember, hell's mentioned by our Lord 33 times. 54 times in the New Testament. Three points I'm going to share this morning. Hell is a place of unquenchable fire. Hell is a place of unparalleled punishment. And uh, hell is a place of unnecessary entrance. So point number one, hell is a place of unquenchable fire. You know, when we think about the fire in hell and what, what we're told in the Bible, I don't think our best mental image can, can even sum up what hell is like. How bad it is, how how terrible it is, how how bad. And so in, in, in Matthew 3.12, in Matthew 13, 41 and 42, in Matthew 13, 50, in Revelation 13, uh, 20.15, they teach us that hell is a place of fire. It's a continuous place of fire. It's always burning. It's never stopped. It's an inferno, the Bible tells us. It's continuous. So hell is a place of heat and fire that's continuous all the time, 100% of the time. Now, now people hearing this in the book of Luke and living through this were very familiar with a couple places. They were very familiar with the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, which was a, they, they were serving, in, in Gehenna was a place. They would offer up babies to try to get their God's favor. So if you had a baby and you were the seventh person to have a baby in your neighborhood, uh, they would take your baby in and, and sacrifice it into a fire and you could smell the burning bodies and stuff. So people are in the area of this could, knew what hell was all about. And, uh, and, and, and then in the, so this is what they believed in. So the Bible tells us it's hell, it's continuous. Uh, hell is a place that we want to avoid. Believe me, it's an unquenchable fire. It's a, uh, it, it's a place that we, we obviously wouldn't want to go to. I, I remember a couple people I met in my life, two people come to mind as I was, I was studying this. Hell is an unquenchable fire. It's continuous, infernal, always going. And, uh, and I was thinking about uh, some, of, some of these examples, some of, some of the things I went through when I was a, uh, in the Army. When I originally joined the Army, I was in the engineers. So uh, when I joined the Army, I went through a school, uh, my basic training, and then they sent me to a school, Navy people call it A school. Uh, I went to a school that was called AIT, and I became a combat engineer. And from there, they sent me to a heavy equipment operator school. And one of the cool jobs, I got assigned to an asphalt company that actually put down asphalt. They made runways, and we had a temporary asphalt plant that could be shipped around the world. Now, remember in 1978 when I came in the Army, uh, the, the plan was completely different. You know, the plan was we were going to fight a war in Russia. It was going to be a conventional war. Things were a lot different 40 years ago than they are today. 
And so things, you know, it's just a 17-year-old kid going in the Army. And, uh, but, but I'll tell you, we had an asphalt plant. And the way the asphalt plant worked, I'll never forget this, uh, how hot that fire was. But you had, these pu- you had a pug mill that let out the stuff, but you had hoppers. So people would come, and they would put a certain grade of gravel in three different hoppers. And depending on what asphalt you made, you may not know this, but on high-speed highways and runways and stuff, there's up to three different kinds of asphalt. Today, uh, out, out here on the highway, if it's not cement, I guarantee you they're using at least two kinds of asphalt. One's a real big one that sticks around forever, but it's easier to get potholes. So they put a finished asphalt over the top of it with less stone and stuff, smaller stone. And they use this glue called AC Cure 20. And they heat this glue up to about 450, 500 degrees. It looks like a black old motor oil. So it's in a big, huge tank of this black old motor oil. And, uh, and then they had a flame inside of this big drum. It was like, think of the biggest washing machine drum you've ever seen. And they had this torch that was just blue. To get the flame right, we would, we would use 17 tanks, full tanks, of gasoline to run one day. And uh, this thing would be straight out gasoline. And you'd make the flame as blue as you can. And that thing had to move 10 miles an hour or it'd burn a hole in the back of this 20-foot drum. It burned a hole right through the back. It had to be moving 10 miles an hour. So we would get started, get it up to 10 miles an hour, get a little bit of dirt in there, and, and what it would do is it would completely dry out the gravel. The objective is to have complete, unlike cement, in order to make asphalt, you need completely dry gravel and works to be there. So, so anyway, we'd light this flame, and it would get so hot, it could be a winter day at Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, especially when I was in school. It could be a winter day out there, and in school, you run that thing every day. And you could take a glass of water and throw it up in the air and nail this thing, and it would completely dissipate. No water would come down and hit your head. This thing was loaded up about here. You could only get within a couple feet of it, three feet of it. And the flame was inside the drum, so it would make it completely dry. Then it would mix with the oil, and, would, and you would, your mix would be put into a truck about 1,000 degrees. And people would go lay it with asphalt, and the objective is to lay it above 300 degrees, or depending on what thickness it is. But I never forgot, that it's unquenchable, it's so hot. Boy, that was a picture of hell. I remember thinking to myself, we, we used to show people to, to have them have respect for the asphalt plant, the pipes with the oil in it and stuff. We'd throw water on the pipes and it would dissipate on the pipes. It would bubble. You know, the pipes were almost 500 degrees. And uh, then we'd go over there by that big drum that'd be turned around and we'd take, I, I had a uh, Boston Red Sox, God's favorite uh, baseball team, and I'd have this big Boston Red Sox mug filled with water and I'd throw it up in the air. It, and it wouldn't even come down. That's how hot. I know you guys may not agree with the Red Sox thing, but uh, it's an unquenchable fire. It's a, in, the, in book chapter in chapter nine of the book of Mark, it tells us that it's a fire that's never quenched. Hell is a fire that's never quenched. So it's unquenchable. Point number two. So uh, uh, point number one. Hell is an, uh, a place of unquenchable fire. It's fire. It'll never be put out. The Bible tells us it'll never be put out. Number two. Hell is a place of unparalleled punishment. And we can look there at Luke uh, 16, 28, right there by our thing. It says, For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So the rich man saying, Can you send Abraham back to talk to my family? You're a real good witness in hell, folks. You don't want your family to go through that. You don't want people to have to go through hell. I'll never forget when I first became a born-again Christian. We had uh, We often tell the story we probably told you in the past that we were searching for churches. I mean, we went to different churches. I went to a church where uh, there were 10 drum sets, and 
they were doing their own thing, but this guy in front of me had a heart, heart attack and laid on the floor and was shaking all over and all kinds of convulsions and stuff like that. And, and you know, of course, I screamed medic as loud as I could, trying to get louder than the bands. And, and uh, I got on the floor, and I'm slamming on this guy's chest, and he was just slain in the spirit. <laughs> no one told us, but... Uh, I cracked a rib of his and stuff, but I cleared out his air passage. I didn't know people did that stuff. I mean, I was born as a Catholic up in Connecticut, praise God. We didn't do stuff like that. And we went to other churches, and, and you know, we went to one church, and uh, we were uh, we were raised in Catholicism, really. Uh, we became Episcopalian for a while. We had our little son, so I was the Episcopalian deacon and trustee or something like that. Again, searching for things of God, think knowledge. I just wanted knowledge from the Bible, and I remember they brought in the Archbishop from Canterbury, and uh, uh, it was Episcopalian Church of England, because the Episcopalian Church of America, in a way, is kind of hooked to the, uh, the Church of England, the same church. And, but anyway, I remember they, this guy came over to the United States to visit us, and people came from bases all over America, uh, their Episcopalian chaplains, and, and people from Episcopalian uh, bases, you know, they saved them money and rented buses from the army and stuff and drove out to meet this man. And I'll, I'll never forget, we all went through and kissed his ring, but I didn't know, it didn't save me from hell. No one told me about hell. No one told me how to ask Jesus to save me. That's the most important. Wonderful people, don't get me wrong. And I'll never forget that day, they gave my son, they, they carried these inserts in a big ball with a chain, and, and they gave it to our two-year-old son, and he started incense. And they, they were lit, man. He was wiping out, like, you know, so picture this. They got, you know, hundreds of people in from uh, these Episcopalian chapels and stuff all over the country. And Doug's wiping them out over there with this, with this thing, flipping, spinning it around. Just never give a two-year-old incense and a thing. That's just something. If you ever start using incense, make sure they're 12 or something. You know, but uh, anyway. But uh, I'll never forget places I've looked, things I've done. And, and no one ever told me that hell was a place of, uh, of that fire. We never talked much about hell. But I kissed that man's ring. I got the flu, a bad cold and the flu for somebody who had kissed it before me. But, you know, hell is much more than fire. It's that torment. In, in 2 Peter 2.16 and in Jude, verses 12 and 13, it says it's a mist of darkness. It's so dark. You know, the hardest, hottest fire, we've never seen the hottest fire. The hottest fire is black. We've never seen that. There are, there are certain scientists who have seen that. Now, how many of you have been to West Virginia? Now, West Virginia, that's a cool state. out. You can do, a, you can do stuff in West Virginia. I mean, you can, you can go like hunting in your backyard and stuff. I mean, they, if your neighbor hears you hunting back there, he grabs a couple guns and says, what do you see? I mean, people like West Virginia. It's wide open, man. It's, just make sure you have a Jeep and stuff and a lot of guns. It's fun there. But anyway, I went there one time, and I was at a church, and this man ran the coal mine in town. And there's a lot of coal miners, wonderful people, and... And I met these wonderful people in church, and, and they said, we'd like to show you our coal mine. And so I was preaching at night. I said, man, I think that'd be great. I'd like to see a coal mine. So I went down to the coal mine the next day, and they, they gave me a special colored hat, you know, so everybody would know I was a rookie and had no clue what I was doing in case something happened. You know, they put safety gear all over, all over me. They actually gave me oxygen. No one else had any. And we took off. They said, these guys are used to not having a lot of oxygen. I'll never forget that. And they said, but when you, when you first have only a little bit of oxygen, enough's not being piped in, you get your real bad migraines, so use this oxygen if you have to. So the man took me back, and we rolled just like you see. It wasn't a coal cart, but it was a coal cart with a few chairs in it that the bosses ride in, and they pushed us down there, just pumped it. It wasn't electric or anything. We just went right down in the coal mine. These things, you could push them with your finger, and they'll roll either way. And uh, I remember we went down, and we got on an elevator, 
and we went down what seemed like two or three minutes. And we got off on this particular level and there was lights, good lighting, uh, and they had, everything was computers and stuff in that particular mine. They had a headquarters that had three times that much, but it was showing them where to mine. These people had 1,200 employees. They had five active mines going on while we were there and they took me in the newest one. And so we went down, and what they were doing is they were, they were charting electronically. You know, we have computers today. They were charting where all the good coal was coming from, and they were looking for the veins. They actually do that now. Well, anyway, this one I'll never forget. So I got down there, and the man started talking to me. He says, remember in the Bible where it talks about hell being really dark and, and uh, uh, that it's, it's black in there, it's complete darkness? And I remember from Second uh, Peter 2.16, I said, yeah. He said, would you like to see what it's like to be in total blackness? He, says if you, he said, some people scream like babies when we do that. And I said, how bad can it be, you know? And so he said, grab a hold, and there was a handle over by one of the computers. He shut off the computer screens. He just shut off the monitors. And, uh, uh, and you couldn't see where the computers were. They must have been underneath or something. And he flipped off the switch. And, folks, I thought I had been in pitch black before I never had. You don't know whether you're standing up or falling or sideways. You don't know anything. It's kind of scary. I wanted to scream and say, dude, turn on the... I was done with my tour at that point. I mean, I was done. I was like, sir, can you turn on the light? But here's the great news about God. Here's the great news about God is uh, light always quenches darkness. Darkness can't quench light. I had a friend of mine, an old African pastor, when I was uh, preaching over in Africa, he told me, he said, Brother Doug, he had that English accent. You know, they so nicely speak, so beautifully speak. He said, remember... Darkness can never quench light. Darkness can never quench light. But I remember I, it felt like I was falling. It felt like I was uh, upside down or something like that. And, but the Bible tells us there's darkness, that it's, it's real. And uh, uh, it's, it's some of the darkest kind. And in Psalm 917, it says, hell is uh, it's a place for the wicked. So it's unparalleled punishment. It's also a place for the wicked. You know, we forget that hell was made for the devil and his angels. It wasn't made for us. It's, it was made for the people who don't accept Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Hell is not made for us. And uh, In Revelation 21, 8, it says, but the fearful, who's going to be in hell? It's a bad place to be. The people who are going to be in hell are bad people. It says in Revelation 21, 8, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and the liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And that word abominable, we all, uh, abominable, we all know means unpleasant and detestable. So hell is a tough place. It's a place of unquenchable fire. It's a place of unparalleled punishment. Here's the good news and the shortest point. Hell is a place of unnecessary entrance. We don't have to go. So all that thing we just read about, it was scary. It was sad, but we don't have to go. We don't have to be part of that. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We don't have to go to hell. God wants us to come to repentance. God wants us to accept his plan. God wants us to believe in him and accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I, I want to give you an illustration, then we'll be all done this morning. This is the illustration I want to give you. Uh, who remembers, this, this crowd is probably all old enough to remember the great chess champion, uh, Bobby Fischer. Who remembers Bobby Fischer? 
So, okay, a lot of you remember Bobby Fisher. What you don't know about, Bobby Fisher was a real knucklehead, okay? Bobby Fisher was going to high school, said he knew more than his teachers did, so quit high school. Uh, he had joined the chess team in high school, and there was a man there, a Navy veteran, who taught him how to play chess. And within a week or two, Bobby was beaten. And Bobby would play chess against himself, and sometimes as many as 18 hours a day. He'd wake up. He had chess games started. He would play seven or eight chess games at one given time against himself. He would go find former chess champions in states. He'd drive to them and play them in chess just so he could beat them. Now, they wouldn't let him play in the Olympics. He beat every American champion and won the American championship, but they wouldn't let him go to the Olympics because he quit high school, so he had missed one Olympics. So he couldn't go to the chess championship because he had quit high school and he hadn't finished high school, which I think is a good thing. Uh, but anyway, one of his favorite things to do is, but he went on to go to the Olympics a couple times and win everything. He beat every chess player in the country. He would taunt chess players. He went over and played in the Soviet Union and taunted them. Uh, he, he was winning games over there. The average matches were taking three and four hours, and Bobby Fischer was, was uh, winning things over there in three to four minutes. He, he was beating everybody. He beat the champion of the world, the one who won the silver medalist in the Olympics, his first Olympics, in three minutes and three seconds. And uh, Bobby's moves were just one. He was one of the most brilliant men there ever was. But what Bobby Fischer loved to do is he loved to go on vacation. And one of the things he did on vacation is uh, he would go to museums. He loved museums. And he came across this picture outside. You can look it up. The name of the picture is called Checkmate. Checkmate is the name of the picture. You can see a picture of it. It was painted. It's an old picture. It was painted in Europe years ago. And basically it depicts the devil on one side of this chessboard laughing, smiling, getting ready to make one move. And it shows him where he's moving to. And it shows this poor guy on the other side crying, sweating, knowing that he's just lost the match to the devil and he's going to go to hell. And Bobby Fisher came across this in this particular museum. Someone told him, you've got to see the picture, checkmate. It's right outside of Berlin. So, so Bobby actually went there for the day. Well, when he got there, he looked at the chessboard for a few minutes, and, and he, he told the people who worked there, he was real arrogant, go get me a chess table and a chessboard right now. And he reenacted the board, and he set everything up just like it was in the picture. It was exactly the way it was in the picture. Every piece of chess was in the same place. And he got this big smile on his face. And he said, young man, you have no worries. When the devil's done moving, you still have one more move. And you can put him in checkmate. And you know what? Today, we still got a chance. We still got another move. We can accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and not have to worry about that unquenchable fire. Not have to worry about that unparalleled punishment. We get to have God in that unnecessary entrance. We get to skip hell. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad I get to skip hell this morning. You know, the Bible tells us a few things we need to know to be saved. I'm going to sit down. First thing it tells us, the Bible says, uh, there are none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that every one of us falls short of the glory of God. The Bible says that our problem is sin. We have a problem with sin. The Bible says there are none righteous. We all got a problem with sin. And uh, the whole world does. There's none righteous. Nobody in the whole world is sin-free. We all have a problem with sin. Second thing the Bible says is because of sin, we're all going to die. That's where, that's where our death comes from, sin. Because of sin, we're all going to die. So the Bible says for the wages of sin is death. So the first thing we need to know is we're sinners. Second thing we need to know is there's a price on sin. Third thing we need to know is Christ paid that price. I don't know about you, but I love the words in Romans 5 eight. But God commendeth his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the great news this morning. Christ died for us. And, uh, but you can know, you can know that you're a sinner. You can know that because of sin, you're, we're going to die. 
and you can know that Jesus paid the price for that sin and still go to hell. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that we must speak it with our mouth and believe it with our heart. So it, it doesn't mean we have to speak it with our mouth and scream it from a, the city street in Sarasota. It means we must pray to God and ask him to save us. And when we ask him to save us, we, we believe it in our heart. We believe it in our heart. If we do that, we get to go to heaven. We're out of hell. We're out of hell. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no steps added. I was brought up with steps. There's no steps. There's nothing else. It's just a relationship with Jesus Christ.